0: How I got here. The inside stories of startups and innovation and in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack.
1: Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of How I Got Here. These are Mosio and Focus Buyer's uh, weekly inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Welcome everybody, regular listeners will know the format here. We have a guest each week and we kind of dive into their background and the history of the company. Uh, a slightly unusual one this weekend that we've actually spoken, we're actually speaking to our guest this week is from a vendor who's working in one of, you know, arguably one of the hottest uh, sectors that's around at the moment. one of the reasons why we're talking to him. He's Michael Dridger. He's the uh, the founder, co-founder, of, I beg your pardon, and the CEO of Operto, which was formerly known, some of you may know this, as Slick Spaces. He's based in Vancouver in Canada. So Operto is a property automation system in vacation rentals, private accommodation, call it what you like. It's a, it's a platform for managing short-term vacation rentals, hotels, and all, all types of of guest accommodation. I guess particularly noteworthy and innovative is it's lean towards the world of smart tech and the providers that it works with. So, you know, it's arguably, as I said at the moment, uh, a few moments ago, it's arguably in the right place at the right time as a startup, given the amount of buzz that has followed the private accommodation sector for the last few years, arguably the last 10 years, some might argue, since the emergence of, uh, of Airbnb. But anyway, uh, uh, welcome, Michael, to how I got here. Uh, we're glad to, that you've been able to join us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, you guys.
1: Okay, so uh, regular listeners will know we always start this podcast off with the very simple question, which is the title of the uh, of the podcast. And tell us, Michael, how did you get here?
2: Um, well, I'm a buildings guy by training and nature. I had a I started my own um, building and uh, green building consulting company back in about 2012, and I was uh, flying back and forth uh, trying to solve problems in uh, mostly in the Middle East. I had a lot of really big projects in the Middle East. Um, One of the projects I was working on was a hotel. There were actually four hotels on the project. And uh, the energy was coming back um, from an energy consumption standpoint, very similar to the outpatient hospital that we were also doing. And I was completely baffled and thought it was wrong, but it turned out it was right. And the reason it's right is because it's 24-7 occupancy and nothing ever gets shut off. So I was, you know, typical building consultant, I'm trying to figure out, well, how do we turn, how do we set it back? So the biggest problem was that the thermostat didn't connect to the booking systems or to anything else in the room. So if someone unlocked the door, I couldn't say, okay, that's a trigger to set it up because those systems just didn't talk to each other. So I tried the consultant route, which was to work with you know, the biggest players in the world around building controls and access controls. Um, and that was a dead end for about two years. Um, and so in about 2016, I decided, well, okay, well, let's, let's just see if I can take the commercially or sorry, the residential grade stuff that's out there and put it together into a solution. And, uh, that was around the time that slick spaces slash Operto was sort of founded.
1: And, um, how much personally was that a jump? As you say you were in the consulting and you were trying to get your head around that part of it to saying, Okay, let's just do this as ourselves, as, as, as you say, originally as slick spaces.
2: Yeah, well, we. So, I'm, uh, my background is in construction. So I did all the early days sort of installs myself. I had a, an apartment that I had turned into our office. And so I was testing things in the office and I had a friend come by. Basically, what I had set up was a Nest thermostat yep. and an August uh, lock. And I basically got the August lock every time that it unlocked the door to set the thermostat up. And then okay. I got it turned back when you lock the door f- only from the outside. And they were like, well, that's amazing. And I was like, okay, well, you know, do you, do you, do you have applications for this? And they were like, yeah, I have, I just, my friends just bought a, an Airbnb in Victoria and they'd love to be able to use it for this purpose and program codes to it. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. So we basically I had a client before the product was created, um, so you know you're doing something right when that happens. <laughs> and um, and it just took, like you know, I, I still have, and I still run my consulting company called Edge Consultants, but I, it was so compelling and there was just so much interest in it that I, it took about, I would say, eighteen months before I quit my job. It's hard to say quit your job when you own a, own the company, right? we stopped running the other company and got my and got a really really amazing um, engineering uh, uh, partner to run it for me um, and yeah so that's that's how I ended up transitioning in about 2000 and let say 17 is when I sort of quit my job yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no regrets presumably
2: no 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 regrets none whatsoever this is uh, <laughs> definitely and I and it's funny like I meet a lot of software co-founders. Um, and I am and i don't fit the mold. Um,
1: okay, I was going to come on to a question about your co founders shortly. I mean, it, it is an interesting yeah. one when you say that you had a, a customer before you had a product. I mean, did you get more customers before the product came along anyway? Or was yeah, it just that it one? Really,
2: it was really fast because the first customer was essentially a property manager right. that was managing 5, 10, 15. And the thing was around that time, and even now, these property managers are growing at incredible rates um we're we're really like um a b two b company, so we mostly work with property managers. We do have the odd um person who's just got one unit on airbnb you know they own it they live in one city, but their their property's in another um but that's rare. most of our clients are property managers hotel hoteliers that kind of thing
1: and and and, and lastly for me for a for a little while i mean was there a temptation to get into the hardware end of it? I know, you, I know was, you
2: Yeah, there was from the co-founder... Like, my co-founder is from the... Well, I have two co-founders. One's from the world of, like, um, a bank banking systems, like bank security and connecting connecting um, bank systems, which, I, which was critical for me from a security standpoint. And my other was from sort of, like, the games world. He, he uh, co-founded a company that did brain training games. And they had worked, they had it's done-
1: brain, brain training games, that's a yeah, curious one. And,
2: and I know it's a curious one, but it's because I've been in the building industry my entire life. And if an interface doesn't work, people will defeat your systems. Right. Um, like, you, I mean, you've seen it a million times. It's the reason, you know, why people fight over the thermostat, right? Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, so it was really critical for me that our UX UI just be like incredibly like work for a three-year-old and an 80-year-old. Because that's essentially how guests' accommodations work. Yeah. It couldn't really, like the tech literally couldn't be an app because my kids don't have access to a phone and my father doesn't use a phone. But he still books stuff on Airbnb <laughs> and uses yeah. accommodations. So we had to build, we had to figure out how to make a system that could be used by the entire guest, uh, you know, sort of um, spectrum.
0: Okay, That's interesting, so, Dave. Uh, yeah, Sorry. I wanted to just, you know, It's a good segue into figuring out how did you uh, think about onboarding these properties? For example, so you, you said in one of your examples was uh, they had a nest thermostat and an August lock. Did you basically, we were only able to work with properties that had nest thermostats and August locks and were so somewhat, you know, already modern upgraded, or do you, or were you able to come in and install them? Or, you know, I'd love to kind of hear about what your onboarding process was like and is like now.
2: Yeah, it evolved over time. So Early days, we also thought, okay, well, we should have a, an install team. It's very much like um, the home automation companies do, like Control4 or whatever. Um, but then that we just realized, okay, well, this doesn't really scale. Um, and honestly, we're not as good at it as, say, you know, our partner who does all of our installs now is Best Buy, right? Like, we couldn't. Flood, we were getting requests from you know Nashville, and Nashville's a long way from our offices in Vancouver. Um, so it would just—it didn't even make sense for us to do that. Um, and also, most of the stuff that we were choosing was stuff that you know those guys could install. They can install a Nest thermostat and a and an August lock or a or a Yale connected deadbolt, which is connected to the August system. Um, so that's when so we were doing our own installs for quite a while. But then we realized you know we should just train um, nationally, you know, national installers to be able to do this bec- and let's pick the national installers that sell the same gear. So that was,
0: so are um, you upselling these August locks locks then? Are you, are you one of their no, main channels?
2: No. <laughs> we're, yeah, we have, we are, we are one of their uh, main channels for sure. Um, they, they do sell a, like, so with smart things hubs, we work with smart things hubs and they were selling lots of those. Um, they're selling lots of eco Bee thermostats, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, they, we use them, uh, not just for install, but also for procurement, but we don't mark up any of the hardware cause we're a software company.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I think you have like a very, really interesting business because you, you're basically working with these PMSs on one side and plugging into everything on the technical side and then doing hardware integrations on the other. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, uh, take it, you know, Moseo is a ground transportation aggregator, same kind of stuff, distribution partners, on one side, suppliers, on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no real hardware components of what we do. And that's hard enough. Um, what have been some of the, the biggest challenges you have faced? Uh, honestly, you know, like it, it kind of uh, melding two worlds together like that.
2: Yeah, no. And it's always like the scaling problems, like you don't have a problem until you hit a certain scale and then you go, wow, um, this hardware, I didn't know it did. So like we've, Because we do everything based on codes, Um, and the reason we did it based on codes is, as I said before, I want um, everyone to be able to enter and check in. So all check-in is done with a four- or six-digit code, Um, and we were firing sometimes, you know, 15 codes a second at these locks, right? Because we got to put on all of the guest codes and the cleaner codes and the owner's code and all these, and the systems were just never designed for that. So we were hitting code limits like really fast. Um, and then as we've scaled to and gotten more and more diversity of project types. So for example, like we, um, like a common door um, in a hundred and hundred unit hotel, um, you're putting on that common door, like a common door, for example, like to the spa or to the, or to the pool. Um, if, if you're at hundred percent occupancy, we're just, we're, just, we're firing a hundred codes at that lock. Um, and, we just had to find it. Uh, we had to. We ran into some really uh, early day issues with with the hardware as it was. It couldn't handle it. So we've had. We had to slowly learn how to, you know, ch- you know, channel things back on and off. And um, yeah, it's all. It's and there's more to it than that, right? Like you learn hard lessons around like uh, the most appropriate locks to use, even in those scenarios. Um, and we've we've gotten really. So we've one of the things that we did was we had to internalize kind of like a an, an design team because um, you can't put like a closet door lock on a on a pool door, right? Like it'll, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So yeah. we've become absolute lock experts, like uh, <laughs> even in codes, <laughs> like what's the code difference between what kind of door you need in Texas versus Arkansas versus Vancouver. Um, we've had to learn those things over time um, without, Uh, supplying any of the hardware it's a unique space to be in honestly
0: so uh, just one last follow-up question here like how much with any aggregator I feel like you're forced to make a decision between how much you cater to who you're aggregating and how much you uh, force them to cater to you meaning do you plug into their api or do you create an api that they plug into which is you know that those are the two extremes um, I imagine there may be certain locks that you're like, okay, well you don't need to have an August lock. There's these 17 locks that you we support or you know, yeah. how do you think about uh you know, how do you think about that trade-off and, and how far were you like willing to go in, in accommodating and expanding the market uh for your services?
2: Oh, really far. I mean most most of the um, most of the modern companies out there are, are you know putting an API out there. Um, And we definitely, (laughs) I would say, pushed a lot of those APIs to their limits and what they're meant to do. We've even actually done that on the software side. Like, I jokingly, we had this hilarious discussion the other day about like, oh, there should be a standard around APIs. And I jokingly said, I would like to see (laughs) standards in the travel industry on what a booking is. Because we we will get booking API data from different PMSs and OTAs that's completely different. So, and that really matters for us because if a booking comes in as a single person that booked a single room, that's no problem. But If that single person booked three different rooms for three different peoples, I want to gi- give three different sets of codes to them, but now I can't <laughs> because the way you look at a booking is one credit card and one payment. So there's, there's a lot. There's def, we're pushing it both on the hardware and the software side when it comes to like, okay, guys, you need to think about your API in
1: a slightly different
2: way. So th- it's a push-pull, David. It really is.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm interested, Michael, because you, you know, says you came across these kind of early uh, early problems with the, with the code and stuff like that, your two co-founders, Mark Baxter and Jason Lamb, what mm. experience did they have in this particular area? Or were they just, you know, one is a product design guy, usability, the other one is a, is a tech and security guy. Did they have any experience in this or were you kind of learning as you go along as a team?
2: Well, they had they had experience in, in how to interface with firmware and and, all, and APIs and, and that kind of thing. And I was really, I mean, I knew the most about locks. Um, you know, I'd, I'd worked in architecture companies for a long time and I'd specified different lock type systems on. I knew how to read a door schedule which is um, the architectural term for like what lock goes on what door. Um, and I, and I knew HVAC systems as well, like heating and ventilation systems cause I worked in green building. Um, so I was kind of the bridge from the way things work uh, at a UX UI level to the actual, like how will it actually function?
1: Okay. And, the, and, and, and the other two had their own kind of skills that they brought to bear then
2: Exactly, yeah. So when we were building a dashboard, I really wanted to make sure that it was something that was crafted entirely for hoteliers and property managers. Because mm-hmm. um, I, like I, I'm a big fan of dashboards because they can be done so well or so badly. Same with apps. Um, <laughs> Check. Like yeah. Just so badly, right? Where it's like six, six, um, six clicks in to get to the thing that everyone wants to use which means that no one can ever find it um, and which is critically important. So like I worked on green building projects. I'll give you an example of why I say this is that we designed all of these amazing, for example, on blinds on this one project, we designed these amazing blinds that were meant to go up and down as the sun came in, but um, they just disabled it because it was too confusing. No one understood how to run the system. So all of the savings and all of the light that they could have been getting and all the views they would have, experience they just default had it down (laughs) no one could even look out the window it was like so the inner and i really and i realized from a very early point of green buildings that if the interface isn't good the solution that you've come up with just fails right away
1: Uh, oh interesting so so tell me i mean none of the three of you had any um, kind of hospitality experience, as in no, the hospitality industry? Awesome. What did you? What were your kind of first impressions when you were really starting out, and you would, you know, you were trying to talk to property managers and you know, figuring out what their PMSs were like, and then you were having the same kind of some conversation, presumably with hotels. What did yeah. you think? Did you think it was a bit backwards in terms of where they were with things, or did yeah, that kind of reflect be, other types right. of building kind of owners?
2: Yeah, I was expecting a super sophistic and this is this, yeah, now it's super, I was expecting a super sophisticated hotel world and a very sort of like hey, let's figure this out short-term rental world and what I found was the complete opposite. The yeah, the, short, sure. yeah the short-term rental industry is unbelievably sophisticated when it comes to uh, to tech, revenue management, uh, pricing optimization, like it, it's it's unbelievable. Um, and SEO, SEM and just even operationally because they just they have to be so efficient um, I mean they don't have a centralized laundry like a hotel does they have to be really clever and really smart about how they do how they change bed sheets, <laughs> because they might have units all over the city so um, that was a really big surprise to me um, and the biggest surprise and challenge really was early days was on the hotel side was um i didn't realize our biggest challenge was actually a fintech problem because a lot of what was happening is the reason i didn't realize this is that the reason that the the front desk stays around so long in hotels is because most of them are on very legacy payment systems that require you to physically collect the credit card and that just doesn't exist in the short-term rental world because they're all on modern systems like stripe and PayPal or whatever there, whatever there is. So they don't have to physically collect credit card details from
0: people. So, so,
2: the that, is not.
0: so that's actually an interesting segue into something I've been thinking about. You know, we interviewed Sonder on this, this podcast, uh, I think a couple months ago, and there seems to be a convergence between the vacation rental world and hotels. Um, you know, Airbnb invested in Lyric. Um, many of these, uh, there's like kind of this idea of this apart hotel, apartment hotel concept. Um, that's kind of something in between. And mm-hmm. I think you, probably have an interesting viewpoint on that convergence because you exist uh, across both industries and kind of plugging in and and kind of straddling that so i you know i'm curious if you how did you experience that because i know you started in one and went to the other Um, how have you viewed that convergence and your place in it
2: it's funny because it it didn't i don't feel like it really started to converge until about 18 months ago um there was and the atmosphere has really changed like I would go to a hotel conference and it would be very one way. And you would, the only time they'd ever mentioned short-term rentals was in how they hard how hard they were lobbying um, against it. Um, and then if you went to the short-term rental conferences, it was kind of like, well, we're just trying to figure out regulation. We want regulation because at least we we know what's happening. Um, but lately it's it's changed completely. Like there, I'm seeing now conferences come out uh this year that are both it's just like accommodation short term like (laughs) accommodation and long term um and and hotels and the hotel i mean marriott was the first to really get into it in any real way with marriott homes and Villas. um but i think you're going to see more of that in the next little while um yeah it's really it's happening really fast and i mean for me i i it felt obvious because like i said i'm a buildings guy and for me a door is a door And if a a guest has a guest, Um, it doesn't really matter if it's a tree house or a (laughs) five-star hotel, it's kind of the same problem. Um,
0: But from the deal-making side, I imagine it's, it's definitely a little different. I mean, I think, I I think about, you know, we've talked to Travel Bank and Amex GBT and, you know, um, there's completely separate problems that, you know, a massive corporation faces versus an SMB. And I imagine you have completely separate problems uh, that you're pitching into a hotel versus a, like like you said, a small Airbnb set of Airbnbs, and how have, how has it affected your business? How do you think about selling to these various uh, different entities?
2: That's that's a really good question. I mean, it's we we still have a lot of short term rental companies like Sondra that we work with that have structures very similar to the large hotel com, um, chains. Um, so we do we are used to going through that process, um, but I but I think it's. It's, it's less about the sales cycle and more about, for the hotels anyway, and more about the paradigm shift. They're really struggling with the fact that they're actually the same thing, um, short-term rentals and hotels. They really think it's very, very different. And the reason they think it's very, very different is because everything is in one spot, right? There's there's a check-in desk with a whole set uh, of of buildings or a whole set of units inside of a single building. So I, I think, um, I think once they overcome that paradigm shift, they'll realize that they're the same thing. It's, it's just, it's just perception. It's not reality.
0: Yeah. It, it reminds me of kind of stuff in the ground transportation world where everyone's like Uber is a completely separate thing. And I think they, you know, a lot of the traditional players didn't really respect that, like to most consumers, a place to you know, a place to stay is a place to stay, a ride is a ride. And, you know, the, this, the, the things that they were distinguishing were mainly on the fringes and things only industry people really cared about. And for 95% of people, they didn't really care. So um, I think yeah. it's an interesting transformation. Sorry, I think I can no, cut you off, no, Kevin.
1: No, no, no. I, I'm interested in kind of the, the, the structure of the company. So three of you as founders, how do you how do how have you kind of built up the company from a headcount perspective? Because in some respects, you know, those in the vendor end of the world, the software end of the world, you know, obviously they have their core tech team, but everything else is a kind of business development and basically trying to sell the products. I mean, how have you kind of split it up around the departments?
2: Yeah, so our our biggest department is definitely the uh, the development team that's uh, designing to the APIs of either. The OTAs, the PMSs, uh, the oh my god, the the constantly growing locks and thermostats and yeah. and air quality monitors and all those things that we connect to. Um, that's our biggest department, obviously. Um, our second biggest is customer success, um, just because a lot of like even when the onboarding goes really well, these these are new systems and people do get confused really easily because when when you when you go from a fourth century BC lock with a key to a (laughs) 21st century digital lock. It's a big leap for a lot of companies. Um, So there's a lot of, they do a lot of trainings, um, a lot of webinars, a lot of like walking people through, okay, you don't have to do anything now. It just, it will automatically send a four digit access code through. So that's our our second biggest team. Our sales team's really small um, because most of, uh, our our inquiries are inbound from our PMS partners. Um, we're now connected to I think it's six fourteen fourteen PMSs, um, and so they just mostly deal with inbound traffic um, and people interested in that in that connection. And what it brings them in terms of you know freeing up their time.
1: Okay, so talk to us uh, a little bit about the rebrand. Why did why did why did you do that? And that was you know fairly early on in the business. Was that uh, a, kind of a I roll moment. Oh, we just picked the wrong name here. Or was there something a little bit more strategic behind it? I mean, not many startups change their, their branding so quickly into their lives, if at all.
2: Yeah, I well, it was we wanted something much, much uh, smaller, much more um, international. Um, like I lived in Japan for quite a while and they can't say L um, very well. And then, so we just wanted something really easy to say as well.
1: And they can't um, say the letter L, did you say?
2: Not very well um it's so you'd be, the, be spaces. I really wrote, yeah it was slick spaces was a bad one um, yeah. <laughs> and you know how it is early days like i had a i had another co-founder who really loved the name um and it's one of those compromises where you're like okay fine let's just do it um but i really grew to dislike it over time and so the moment that we had a chance to have the conversation about changing it i pushed very hard um for it to be changed uh, to something, you know, that was just, you know, a little bit more memorable we could get as it was shorter for a dot-com um, And that could be seen as more of an international brand. We were also getting confused as slick spaces as a property manager yeah. uh, because People thought we were a property manager. And so I want to remove that confusion as well
1: Okay, and you know, you're based in Vancouver. I mean, yeah. how have you how was what tell us a little bit about the um you know, in inverted commas, startup community uh, uh, there in either, either in Canada or in, on the, that kind of West Coast where you are and how that compares in your experience from dealing with other startups to other, you know, other startup areas such as the Valley and, you know, places over in Europe.
2: Yeah, well, we're definitely not the Valley um, <laughs> or Toronto, if you're familiar with the other large Canadian city. I mean, Toronto is a really large, has a very vibrant uh, startup community in Canada. Vancouver's is still pretty small. It's very, very small. We have, we have some really big head off, um, some big offices like Microsoft has a big office here and, yeah. and Amazon has a big, but they really just use it as a launching point uh, they did for a while um, as a launching point in to bring people into the their U S offices. And now that that's gotten harder, they've just grown them here. Um, so we have like, you know, well-established tech companies that are large here, but our startup community is really, I mean, there's not a lot of venture capital companies out here uh, except for in Seattle and, uh, and California. So what happens mm-hmm. quite often is uh, they'll move out of Vancouver. Um, so like, like Stuart Butterfield, for example, he moved out of here a long time ago to start Slack. Um, there's lots of those sort of stories, so it definitely was hard, <laughs> and yeah. we definitely had to fight to stay here because it is—it's kind of—I jokingly say it's an outpost town. It really is an outpost <laughs> town. It's a lovely
1: outpost town, though. Um, I'm, 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 sure yeah. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Sadly, <laughs> I've not been to Canada. I must put it on my list. I mean, but you know, I guess a more serious point around startups and things like that. I mean. Talk to us about fundraising, if Mm -hmm. at all, how much and any of the challenges that you may have kind of come across by virtue of being in the, uh, in your words, the outpost, if that has been a factor.
2: Yeah. The only thing that people were used to, so when it came to like the angel round, the only thing people had ever really invested in here were like oil and gas companies, timber companies, people that were doing some um, um, a little, you know, in the healthcare world, there, there was some of that the odd FinTech thing. So what we were doing in the world of prop tech in 2016, PropTech, prop tech, they'd never heard of it. Um, so it was really, it was really, really challenging early days. Um, so, you know, I had to do some, I, I got a, I got a very untypical thing for mm-hmm. a startup. I did a, I got a loan from something called the BDC, which is the Development Bank of Canada, just to keep things going. Um, which ended up being a, a great, uh, a great thing to do. Um, and then when we were raising, um, we, we, we did have to go to the U S, um, quite a bit. Um, but then halfway through the raise, um, Darren Houston, the former CEO of booking.com. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he came in and said, you know, like I'll, I'll help, uh, fund multiple rounds. Um, and so he led the first round of about 5 million in 2018 and that was kind of the launching point for us to really grow the teams out and um, and figure out other countries because before that we'd we'd had the odd customer in you know in europe and the odd customer in japan but we couldn't really dedicate resources to solving anything at any real scale for them Mm -hmm. um but now we've been able to so we're opening up an office in europe um in may and um yeah we just we have we, we we've had clients that are scaling um, in Australia and and that kind of thing. So okay, and that's only been the last little while since. Yeah, you, can, you can't do very much without money. Sadly,
1: uh, in de- so, indeed,
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So you've mentioned a couple of times. Uh, I noticed you. Alluded to, you know, interfaces and problems with interfaces and your learnings around that. And uh, this is a little bit uh, potentially uh, off-piste here, <laughs> uh, but it seems to be something that interests you a lot. So I kind of wanted to, um, you know, see if, uh, you know, how you one, how you thought about that as related to your business and you know, designing for um, all these different use cases. But just in general, like how you how you think about user interface.
2: Yeah. So I've been in um, a lot of smart homes. Uh, that were like small nightmares where the uh, the the light switch looks like a piece of glass and you got to tap it five times on one corner to turn on lights in one corner and three times on the other um, and even if I live there I don't think I'd be able to figure it out so I've always been a big believer that a light switch is a light switch and shouldn't look like a control <laughs> panel for the Starship Enterprise um, and I and, that, and that's sort of, that's the basics of it. I think it's because of my, like, I grew up in Saskatchewan, um, which is the middle of Canada. Uh, my last name is Mennonite, um, which is kind of uh, kind of like the Amish, um, like German Amish. So I've always, like, I had an upbringing of very simple things um, and doing things very simply. And, uh, and I think that, so that, uh, and then when I started working in architecture, I worked for very modernist firms that liked very, you know, um, very simple lines, very simple, very simple everything. So I, uh, I have a, a modernist Mennonite aesthetic when it comes to interfaces, <laughs> just quite a, and it probably, yeah, I don't know. It's probably, I'm probably the only pr- person with that combination of <laughs> references. Yeah. So that's for me that, and that's a big thing.
1: Okay. So uh, last one, last one from us then, um, Michael, I mean, it's, interesting to me because you are so uh, and I I don't like to end on a kind of a, a downbeat note but I'm curious because you are so reliant on things that arguably are out of your control I yeah. my my sense is that so whether it's lock standards or whether it's um, reservation system standards or lack of and things like that I mean what what, what is the kind of the biggest potential dis- disruptor to uh, one the business or indeed the progress of the business given that you are reliant on so many things that you don't have control over
2: yeah well we i i chose only the largest companies in the world in every category of the hardware providers i was working in um because there's definitely that worry that like oh if this lock manufacturer goes out of business then i won't be able to service it but i'm working with yale um Abloy, which is i mean their market cap is larger than ikea's um, right. They're massive. And then the hubs we were working with uh, early days were from Samsung, right? So you, we, you always have to mitigate that. And I've always sort of felt that um, control is a bit of an illusion anyway. Like <laughs> even in any in any sort of vertical, you're sort of um, at the mercy of the way things swing. Um, but I think for us, as you mentioned at the beginning, this is where things are going. It's pretty clear in terms of IoT so I don't think that IoT is going away anytime soon. Um, the biggest concerns were definitely early days that, you know, a, a particular IoT provider would go out of business, which is why we made our strategic decisions early to only work with, you know, private, you know, uh, public health companies that, that have been around for a long time, like Samsung and NASA it uh, makes
1: stuff. a lot. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So, um, yeah. uh, th- thank you very much, uh, Michael, for joining David and I on this particular episode of How I Got Here. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, guys okay so and uh, regular listeners will know we'll be back next week with another episode of how I got here Uh, you can follow us on Twitter which is the high uh, podcast Uh, we're also on Instagram and we're also on Facebook and you can read uh, these stories and the episodes that we cover both on focuswire.com and on Mozio as well so uh, look out for this episode and uh, sorry look out for our our next episodes. and you know we're we're into the 20s now the numbers that we have recorded so the back catalogue is all there so and we've interviewed some uh, fascinating innovators and people in the industry over the course of the last six months or so so keep tuning in thanks again uh, ever so much uh, to michael and uh, thanks ever so much from us to the audience as always from david and i we'll see you next time thanks a lot
0: thanks for listening to how i got Here podcast We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages and get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.